What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How did they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own successful internet businesses. Today, I am talking to Josh Wood. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Cortland. It's great to be here. You are one of the founders of a SaaS company called Honey Badger. There are two other founders in addition to you. You also have two full-time employees. And with the five of you in total, you're very profitable. You're doing over a million dollars in annual recurring revenue. You have low expenses and super high SaaS margins. And you bootstrapped your way to get here. So the three of you own 100% of the company. Is that right? That's right. I couldn't have said it better myself. I think you're entirely remote too. So none of you are clocking into an office. You're just working from home or wherever you want. Yeah, so I'm uh, located in the greater Portland area. I'm in Vancouver, Washington. And then uh, my two co-founders are up in the Seattle area, Seattle and Kirkland, um, as well as our marketing uh, manager, uh, Ben Findlay. And then uh, cool, actually Vancouver. Yeah. Yeah. You've been you said you've been. Yeah, I don't know why. I think I was in Portland. And we just drove up to Vancouver. Yeah. For some reason. Yeah, it's there's been a lot of tech activity in Portland um, over the years here, and it's a great place to Great place to work and live. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I was just like singing karaoke and getting drunk. <laughs> Were you? <laughs> I wasn't doing much tech. <laughs> well, it's great for that too. <laughs> so give us a sense of your working hours as well. Are you putting in like 80 hours a week as a founder or is it 20 hours a week? Do you have any flexibility? Do you take vacations? Uh, absolutely not uh, 80 hours a week. And we try to take a lot of vacations. Um we actually were pretty low, um, low hours on, I think, the grand scale of things. Um, we try to put in a like 20 to 30 hour week. And, um, and really, like our, our week target is like, uh, like a, to- a total uh, week of 30 hours. And that's actually what we advertise in our job postings and stuff, too. So we're like a 30 hour week company. Very cool, man. You're living the dream. I feel like <laughs> most of the developers I know would love to spend their time hacking away on their own software project that's printing money on whatever schedule they want, yeah. 30 hours a week. And you're also working alongside a pretty tiny team of people mm-hmm. that you actually like to work with because you, you got to handpick these people. Yeah, it's great. And I think we've, um, we've kind of been learning that like if we hire people that are a little bit like us in that regard, like that are kind of a little bit more of a, having like an entrepreneurial you know, spirit to them, like they uh, might have their own side projects. And that's why it's appealing to have kind of a, uh, a job that doesn't completely consume all of, their, all of their energy. But we keep it flexible to where... Uh, you know, everyone can make up, make their own schedule, basically. Okay, so what's the catch here? What's something that's challenging or some downside that as an outsider looking in, I might be missing? That's a good question. Uh, well, we're a small team. Um, we uh, are definitely not like rocket ship or hockey stick growth that you might have, uh, you know, with a lot more either um, funding or, you know, trying to scale up a large team quickly. So we, you know, you kind of have to settle into a, you know, a slow and steady routine. And that's what we've done over, over the course of the business where I, this is a uh, year seven for us. So we've been, we've been here a while and, uh, we've, uh, overcome some, uh, some plateaus like with growth. Um, that's kind of a continual pattern we've noticed, like, you know, you kind of grow for a while and then it kind of tapers off and you got to figure out what, you know, what the problem is and get it going again. But yeah, it's just uh, slow and steady, kind of boring. But yeah, it's uh, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. 
This is the yeah. worst problem. It's slow and steady. I don't know. Like, more. yeah. Um, I mean, we. I'm sure there's other problems we can go into. Um, I, you know, the nature of our business is very technical. We're a, um, app, you know, a SaaS monitoring app. Basically, we have a lot of uh, like high high volume uh, data ingestion that's happening um, that has a pretty heavy like ops burden on the team. That's you know, as that's so small. So, I mean, it's not you know, we have our we have our moments, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I think overall, we're very happy with the way things are going and, and our um, lifestyle that has resulted from business. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about Honey Badger. You said it's a monitoring application. Who's using it and why are they using it? Yeah, so um, our customers are mostly uh, small to medium-sized teams, I would say, of uh, software developers. Um, we're, you know, we're pretty much all software de- developer. We're a software developer uh, run company. All three of us founders are uh, developers ourselves. Um, so it's kind of natural that that's like pretty much all we know. So we've, we've gone very heavily into like, you know, developers are our people. But what we do is we're a web application monitoring platform. So we do a few things. Um, but the, the biggest one is uh, probably exception tracking. So uh, when an exception, you know, you plug us into your uh, your application framework code or whatever, and then when an exception happens, we uh, collect a bunch of information about what happened with your uh, user specifically is kind of our end goal. And then, uh, you know, perform alerting and notifications and uh, and all that stuff to help the development team fix the issue as quickly as possible. Okay, so let's talk about how you got here and find out exactly how you built this business that has very few downsides. You started Honey Badger in 2012. Oftentimes, the real starting point for a business, though, is well before the founding date. So what would you say is the point where the story of Honey Badger really begins? I would say it began in 2009. I was, um, at least my part of the story, definitely began in 2009. So I was a a freelance developer, web developer. Um, I was at, I think, Prior to that, I had done mostly uh, like uh, PHP and front end development, pretty much like your standard fare at the time. And uh, I had always wanted to get into uh, Ruby on Rails, uh, which is the framework by, at the time, uh, 37 Signals. And um, it was originally it had been the framework that uh, they built Basecamp on, and it still is. But I, I really liked that, and I wanted to, uh, I wanted to break into it. Um, and the way I did that was uh, I ended up meeting my current co-founder, uh, Ben Curtis. I think he had just posted a blog post about wanting some contract help with Ruby. Um, and I was like, hey, like, I'm kind of playing with Ruby on Rails. I really want to learn. Um, I'm freelancing full-time. I'd love to work with you. And that's kind of where the relationship started. And uh, yeah, and then from there, it's like... You know, we kind of worked together. Um, our other co-founder, Star, was kind of in the same position. He was also subcontracting with Ben, and we all worked together over the next couple of years. Um, I think like they ended up even going and getting um, like a day jobs together at a startup in Seattle. But we like never left the campfire chat room basically and stayed in touch. And then that's kind of where Honey Badger came out of that relationship of like just working together on a day-to-day basis. And we kind of saw this need that we had that we wanted to basically solve for ourselves. Yeah, that's perfect. When you can find co-founders who you've already worked together with on certain projects in the past, because then it's not this huge mystery box question mark, what's it going to be like to start a company with this person? You already know. Yeah, yeah. And I like, it's funny because like a lot of the, like come to realize like, 
lately that a lot of the things we do and the way we run the company, like is totally just an extension of that original like relationship, which is a little, it can be a little weird probably like now that we're bringing more people into the mix. Cause it's like, you know, we're just like three guys in a chat room basically, but yeah, so that's, that's pretty, pretty fun. Give me an example of that, of it being a little bit weird for an outsider coming in and seeing how you guys work together. Well, I think we're, we're, uh, we've been having to like come up with a little bit more process. I think now that we we're bringing more developers and, and things in, and even contractors too, like into, uh, the day-to-day of what we're doing because the three of us are kind of like we're all very independent and um and we're all used to pretty like you know to kind of just picking what we feel like working on and then going and doing it like we're we're very much like individual um like you know we're not we're honestly like we're not pair programming like very rarely <laughs> we kind of like to just put our headphones on and you know be in our own offices and just work on something because that's like you know, that's what we did as freelancers. Basically, we were always remote. So, you know, it's na- it's natural for us to uh, to be just, you know, at home in our office quietly. Yeah. Working. Yeah. That sounds sounds a lot like me. I was also freelancing in yeah. 2009 <laughs> uh, using PHP, learning uh-huh. Ruby on Rails, doing the same thing you were. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of us were. <laughs> yeah. And I was also working from home. Um, I've been working from nice. home for like 10 years. I'm part of Stripe now. I still work from home every day. Awesome. So all three of you were freelancers. Mm-hmm. I think freelancing is the best way to transition from having a full-time job and to being a founder of your own company. It's not that different. You guys are probably all still writing code every day, just like you would at a normal job, but you also don't have a boss. Instead, you have a client. In fact, yeah. you have multiple clients instead of being beholden to one company. So it's just a good way to get your feet wet. It's a great stepping stone between employment and being a founder. What are some lessons you learned from freelancing and have any of those stuck around to help you run Honey Badger today? It definitely, well, from a remote standpoint, I mean, that's where I learned how to work remotely and how to be productive when I don't have someone, you know, like a manager, like sitting over me, like telling me what to do. Like, I remember, I mean, it kind of like, I did it for so long that it feels natural now. But um, I think like, if you're just getting started out, that's got to be a really tough thing. And I actually remember, you know, it over the years, like I had to learn a lot of things in order just to get my work done at home and like, you know, not sit around and watch Hulu or something. (laughs) My brother used to watch me basically work on my startup from home all the time. And he had a full-time sales job. And I would complain about not being able to get stuff done sometimes, being behind. And he was like, man, if I didn't have to go into work every day and report to a boss, I would be so productive. I'd be a machine. And then like six months later, he quit his job and I was teaching him how to code. And he was just like, watching Netflix, chilling all the time. Yeah. Like when you don't have that external pressure, it's, yeah. It's, I mean, you got your, you got your Xbox like sitting right there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's just so easy to do other stuff. And you realize like the yeah. only reason you're not doing that all the time is because you have a boss. Yeah. Yeah. So that I, you know, that's, that's kind of a, uh, it, it can be hard, but it's also, uh, I think it's really awesome. Pro- it's an awesome process to go through. Um, especially if you're the type of person that likes to, uh, you know, that can like self learn and, you know, kind of grow on your own, especially. Yeah, you build up these these independence muscles, so to speak. Yeah, totally. And I mean, that's that's essential, obviously, for, for starting a business and where, you know, you, you end up becoming the boss um, to some extent. We try to we try to say we don't have bosses at Honey Badger, but, you know, there's a little there, decisions have to be made sometimes. <laughs> yep. So what, what would you say about going the other direction from sort of freelancing from like a consulting business to running a product business? What are some of the differences there? 
so that's that's a good question. One of the reasons that I would say we all three of us wanted to go the product route and transition from consulting and freelancing to product is uh, the recurring revenue stream. And uh, I think we were all to various extents dealing with, like you said, when you're freelancing, you don't have a boss. Um, you have like, you know, 50 bosses or, <laughs> or probably more like, it's probably a smaller number, but you know, you have like three to five bosses, uh, which mm-hmm. are your clients. And also like your income is usually, uh, you know, your ability to uh, have income is tied to your directly to your time. And, uh, and that's a really tough, that that's a really tough situation. Like, I mean, you can do really well, uh, freelancing and it's fun. Like I like it, but ultimately I think if you don't find a way to create some sort of, uh, you know, like revenue, cash flow stability, um, and ultimately maybe some, some sort of recurring revenue stream, you can risk burning out over time because, you know, at least this is my experience, but I, it was difficult to go on vacations because as a freelancer, and I'm sure you can relate to this, like, you know, you know, that the minute you go on vacation, you're, you stop making money. Yeah. This is no better impetus to, <laughs> to <laughs> switch up your business model than like, Hey, I'm not making money if I'm, if I stop working and I want to be able right. to break. Yeah. And so that was like, that was the thing I think that was like why we had the dream of like having, like having some sort of recurring revenue stream. And, uh, and we naively went into product, <laughs> into, into software as a service. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I say that kind of, uh, I'm kind of joking there, but like, it's, uh, there, we've learned a lot of lessons from that too. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not all, it's, it's not easy to build that up either. Um, it's a slow process and you got to be in it for the long haul. Yeah. We're going to get into a lot of those lessons, but first things first, how did you come up with the idea to work on Honey Badger? We were at the time using a similar service called, uh, at the, actually it was called originally it was called hop toad. It later became uh, Airbrake. I was going to mention that and, uh, to use yeah. Hoptoad. Did you? Yeah. Uh, so what did you think of the name change from Hoptoad to Airbrake? Uh, were you happy, sad, or indifferent? I was indifferent. I kind of liked okay. their, their quirky, like green Hoptoad branding. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I didn't really care that much. I like, I really liked the, I liked the quirky branding and uh, maybe you can guess from like, we named our company Honey Badger. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we like that style, like the, you know, the, the kind of quirky, uh, fun style. And so I was actually like, I was pretty, pretty bummed out when they had to change it, change the name. Uh, but anyway, you know, we were, uh, we were big fans of the application for a long time. It was like the first of its kind, at least that I had ever seen. Um, the way the, the the ability to basically, as a developer, understand and know what when your users are having problems with your code, like is was an extremely powerful thing that I'd never experienced before. Like before, it was like you know you just kind of throw it out there and hope that it hope that it works. And especially as a freelancer, like that gave us uh, the ability to serve our clients a lot a lot better because we could respond to their issues with, you know, if they encountered a bug or something, like we would know about it before they would have to go and, and like email us or something or, or ask what happened. So we could be proactive. And, uh, and so, yeah, we were big fans of, of Airbrake. And uh, it, at around, um, I think it was around 2011-ish, they had been, uh, ThoughtBot, the, um, the agency that had originally built and run it, uh, sold it. And uh, I think they sold it to like a private equity firm. 
it got passed around a little bit, like like sold a few times over the span of I I think like like I forget what it was, like five years or something. But during that process, like we noticed that it's like it wasn't like going downhill pretty fast. Like we were having a lot of issues with it. Um, it started like not basically just not working. It would send us error notifications that something happened, but then we would we would go to see it in the in like the application UI and it would just have like a loading in like spinner, you know, that would like yeah. it wouldn't tell you. Like they'd tell you that something happened, but then they wouldn't tell you what it was. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was like the most frustrating thing in the world to like to know that you, you know, your client just like, you know, your app just blew up for a bunch of your clients' customers but you don't know what it is and they're asking you, but you can't tell them um, without, you know, doing, going and digging really. A Sounds lot. like Airbrake needed to use Airbrake. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe they could have, they should have used Honey Badger when it came out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, so that was, uh, that was the frustration. And uh, after a while it got so bad. And I think um, actually like the thing, like the last straw, interestingly, was actually not just the, uh, the technical issues, but it was actually their customer support. Um, which was pretty much non-existent, and that was the problem. I think it was Ben. I think it was Ben who like got really mad one day when like the the like the issue that I mentioned. Like we got a, he got an alert, and then went to see what it was, and he it couldn't tell him. And I think like you know he probably didn't have other instrumentation set up because he was relying on Airbrake now. So he emailed their support and uh, and asked like if they could tell him what happened and I I forget the response but it was basically like yeah you know like shrug like I don't know it was like some generic response wow like you know like a can support response type thing mm-hmm. um and that that was like the final straw where like you know he was like you know I can't deal like yeah I don't know we all get really mad like we're all really adamant about good customer support and that's one of our like core things at Honey Badger too so. Yeah. So at that point, like we were, we were like, you know, we can't use Airbrake basically at this point. So what are we going to do? And combined with, uh, you know, we'd, we'd all been talking about uh, wanting to do products and we we're kind of, kind of looking around like uh, Ben had actually like started some things before. I think Star had one or two as well. Um, I was new to it, but I really wanted to, wanted to get into it. And so, um, when that happened, we were like, you know, let's just build it. You know, let's just start building this for ourselves, and and then maybe you know it'll turn into something. Very cool. I love this this sort of business genesis where like an existing tool that's good goes away, and now there's a gap, and no one else is stepping in to fill it. But you kind of already know that the business works because you've seen it work before. Yeah, and the other beautiful thing about that is that you know there are customers that are in the same position as you. That are frustrated and they're wishing that something else existed, uh, which was kind of just blind luck for us, to be honest. Like, I think you know, we we honestly we got pretty lucky just building at that time because there were other people like us that were in that position, and uh, honestly, like a lot of our initial customers were um, ex Airbrake users. So that's where a lot of our initial growth came from. Was basically just like telling people, hey, like there's an alternative. <laughs> so. Do you remember how you got your very first customer? Very first, I forget who was actually first, but like our first 10 customers, for instance, um, I would say it's like absolutely came from our initial, just our friends and our our current like professional network. Like we were basically just emailing people saying, hey, like check this out, like we're building this and uh, and then giving them like basically a beta invite. 
It's the other good thing about being a developer and building developer tools, because then suddenly you know yeah. a whole bunch of potential customers. You know where they you know hang out, developers. understand them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, totally. How long did it take you to have something that was actually worth people using and eventually paying money to use? I think we, if recollection serves, we we started building around May or June of 2012. And we launched in... I think it was in September. Okay, September, so that's pretty October. fast. It was pretty fast. And uh, and that was, at that point, like, I think we got our first paying customer. And and then it was, from there, it was just kind of, you know, that slow ramp I talked about. But we, we were well served by the fact that we knew, like, we, we identified that people were looking for this. And so then we started, like, looking for ways to, to uh, tell them about it. So give me a sense of your lifestyle at that particular moment because you weren't making enough money obviously right out of the gate to support doing this full time did you yeah. quit your freelancing and work sort of live off your savings or were you guys freelancing on the side while running this business so we freelanced on the side uh totally so in the early early like at first it was completely nights and weekends because it wasn't making anything um, and we were just building it so we could use it during our day like in our day jobs basically so i remember at the time i was into like, like getting up really early and having some like you know spare time in the morning to work on things when there's no clients knocking you know sending emails or or bugging you about anything so i think at the time that i was spending most of my time on honey badger like pre-launch it was between about like four and six a.m and uh i'd get up and hack on it for you know a couple hours or something and then take a break, you know, do my morning stuff and then go get back to my desk, basically, um, where I'd been that morning and work on client stuff for the rest of the day. So this is where the freelancing stuff really paid dividends, because not only did you build up like this sort of muscle we were talking about earlier, where you had the discipline to really work on this on your own hours and get stuff done, but you also had the flexibility from your freelancing schedule to basically work around that and work nights and weekends on this project Mm -hmm. and I assume like you eventually started scaling down your freelancing as Honey Badger became more and more profitable too. Yeah, we did. And that took, I think it took about a couple of years before like for us to go to full time, which like I feel like is really fast. I'm like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy about that. And, uh, but yeah, over the, I mean, it was, it was definitely like, you know, at the time it felt like a slow process and it was a lot of work, you know, jumping between things. And uh, yeah, but we tried like we we tried to be good about actually like as Honey Badger started to make revenue, we tried to make that like income that replaced our existing income and then and then scale back on the on the freelancing versus like just trying to do more and more and more because that's that's kind of a that can be a trap like you start making some money on your product and it's great. Like you have extra money, but I mean, you might not want to like, maybe you just want to have extra money. Like, you know, so you could keep making a lot of money from, from consulting and then just try to keep doing the nights and weekends thing on the product and, and try to, you know, just bank that extra income basically. But I mean, eventually as the thing grows, like it becomes more and more stressful and, uh, and it's good. I think like it worked out really well for us to gradually like cut back on our uh, client work. So basically, you know, every so often we would say, okay, like how much more income is Honey Badger making? Okay, let's cut back that much income on the the freelance side. Yeah, that's perfect. I know a few people 
that I've had on the show who were able to convince their boss at their full-time job to let them cut back and go to like a four-day work week or a three-day work week. But that's uh-huh. like a lot rarer. It's a lot harder of a sell. But if you're a freelancer, there's like, you're only needing by these permission. You just set your own hours anyway. So it's super easy. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard a, few, uh, a few people mention that they've gone that route too. But yeah, it's not, it's not a ton. So you guys started building this for yourselves. Was there a particular moment in time where you, you said, oh shit, this is something that could be an actual business where you should charge other people to use it? I, you know, I think we already, I think we always had it in the back of our minds that we were going to sell this. Like, I think that's kind of like, that kind of comes naturally to us. I don't know if it's because we were like part of the freelance thing or if that's just the way we are. But like, I think, you know, we're, we all, we always have like the, the thought that like, you know, if we can, if we can build this up and make it into something that we could sell or, you know, other people would want that we want to do that. So I don't know if there was like a specific moment where we said, uh, you know, where we realized that I think it was kind of always in the back of our heads. And then maybe as things, as we started to get like gradual, you know, we gradually saw interest from other people and we, we saw the response of people being excited about it when we told them about it. Then I think that's when we were really like, like, uh, it got us excited and, and it, I probably, you know, it spurred us to action to like actually go out and, and make it, make it a real thing. So the scary part of all this is that even though the three of you were very entrepreneurial, very self-motivated, you've never actually started a product business before. And I'm sure there are all sorts of question marks in your head. Was there anything you guys were was there anything you guys were particularly worried about in the beginning that you didn't quite have figured out? We didn't have like we we pretty much didn't have anything figured out. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I don't think we were worried about it to be honest. <laughs> so I guess it worked. It worked for us. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think we we kind of just dove into it. Um, I will say that uh, that my two co-founders are great, and um, they both had a little bit. They had some more experience than I had at the time, and I'm very thankful that for that experience because I think it did play. You know, it played into a lot of some of our earlier, like our first actions. Um, so we did have some uh, some experience and knowledge of like what like they were they were at the time part of uh, the uh, I think. The microconf community was kind of mm-hmm. just getting, uh, it was either just getting started or it was kind of newish. Um, they were kind of in that bootstrapped, like bootstrapper, early bootstrapper community a little bit. So we had heard, you know, some of the things to do, like, and some of the things to not do. So I guess we, we knew a few things, but yeah, it was, it was all very new. And, and, uh, I don't think we, I, at least I personally didn't realize how much that we were going to be having to learn over the next, you know, seven years. Of, of the business and continue to learn today in order to move it to the next level, basically. Yeah, when I look at your team, the first thing that stands out is all three of you are developers, which is great because it means you can build a really solid product that's going to work probably. But also, you know, do you have any experience with marketing? Do you have any experience with sales? Like, how are you going to actually get this in people's hands? Because I know so many developers who can build something that works, but then nobody actually wants to use it. So how did you guys figure out, yeah. you know, how to grow Honey Badger beyond your first 10 users who are all friends and colleagues to, and to what it is today. So we, like I said, we had like, we had a small amount of experience in, uh, in marketing and some of the other, like that sort of the sales side of it. Um, like I said, Ben had, uh, Ben and Starred both like, um, had a few ventures that they tried successful and unsuccessful. So we had a, we had a little bit, um, but going back to the freelancing thing, like I think that, 
again, that played a very big role in our ability to uh, to actually like sell because we could sell ourselves like we knew how to sell our own services. And, uh, you know, we knew how to get clients like we were all pretty successful as freelancers. And um, and so personally, like I had already started that learning journey, I guess, like, you know, probably 10 years before um, where I was like, you know, I was making no money and I was trying to freelance and uh, and, and, you know, like learning basically just about general business stuff, you know, learning about a little bit about sales. Like I'm not at all a sales, you know, sales is not my uh, specialty, um, but it, it was a necessary thing, like to be able to go out and get clients and, and network and all that stuff that goes into uh, actually like serving clients. So that's some of that translated, I think, into uh, the business, being able to run a business like in the early stages, at least with Honey Badger. And then, yeah, I don't know, like I think freelancing isn't probably it's not the only route to take, like to learn those skills. Like I hear these days, I hear a lot of people talking about, um, you know, starting with smaller smaller uh, products or, you know, like doing info products, for instance, instead of like jumping straight into a SaaS. Um, yeah. So totally. you can build up some of those, those skills uh, that you need in order to um, grow a business. So you learn some, you see some sales, you learn some marketing and then, and you know, the feedback cycle is a lot smaller, so you can get feedback a lot quicker and, and refine what you're learning. Let's say I'm listening into this and I'm a developer working a full-time job at a company and I'm convinced on the freelancer route. What's a tip you might have for me to get started as a freelancer that you know would help me out as somebody who knows nothing about how to find clients and, and run a business of my own? So disclaimer, I like pretty much I never had a job. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I can't I can't speak like from the experience of like having a job and then jumping into freelancing because I pretty much like like uh, web development was a hobby when I was a teenager. And I kind of just gradually like, you know, started learning how to like get small clients and then get slightly better clients. One of the most valuable tips, I would say, um, it's not directly related to uh, like, you know, transitioning from full time to freelancing, but uh, basically curating your client, like the type of clients that you're that you're working with. I've heard a lot of people talk about, you know, you should uh, you should trim. I don't know if it's like you should trim your you know, 20% of your worst cust- like clients or something like that every year. But I started doing that, um, you know, and it's like, it's kind of like, you know, like the whole fire the client idea. But that's a real thing. Like, you know, you're not the only person that need- that should get fired sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you want to actually like build up a consulting or a freelancing career, you're not going to have the best clients in the beginning. Like, just take it from me, like you'll have pretty, probably you'll have pretty bad clients, at least that I did. And um, I had to learn a lot about how to get the clients that I actually wanted. And, uh, and so through that process, you know, you can, it's easy to get stuck in that in a rut of just like, you get some clients and you just work for them, you know, as long as they'll have you, that doesn't give you the opportunity to, uh, to grow or, or, you know, expand um, the type of uh, the quality of the client that you can, that you can work for basically. So I think paying attention to that and actually like having some targets of like who you want to be working for or helping in the future is a good, is a good goal to have. Yeah. I love that advice. I also fired quite a few bad clients when I was freelancing. You get a lot of yeah. bad clients. It's really easy to get bad clients, but I ended up in the end working primarily with high growth startups that were very well funded that weren't worried about nice. their budgets <laughs> and that were working on pretty cool stuff. And that was yeah. what really worked for me. Yeah, well, that's like, that's a great, like, uh, 
yeah, that's like a great audience to serve as a as a consultant. Okay, so let's talk about sort of the earliest days of Honey Badger post you guys going full time on this. Was there like a certain point in time where you all three decided, okay, this is real, let's all go full time? Or did you transition out of your freelance jobs at different times? So it was around the same time. Um, probably, I would say because it was at the same time, not necessarily because we were all in the same place, but because we kind of all waited for each other to get to the get to the point where we wanted that we were it was all like comfortable for us. Um, because we were not all in the same places in our lives at the time. And I, I'll say, uh, especially for Star and myself, and even going back to the whole like working nights and weekends thing, even as a freelancer, like we did not have kids. <laughs> so that's, the, I, I just want to qualify that. Like it would have been much harder with kids. And, uh, and I know it's possible, but um, it would have been more challenging. So as we uh, like went through that bootstrapping, you know, cutting down on the freelance work as the income from the business came in, we all had kind of targets that we had discussed of like what what is like um, a reasonable full-time salary for us basically that can replace our current income because ben, at the time ben had ben has a couple kids and you know they're they're a lot older they're like yeah they're older and you know he's got a family and so he can't just uh you know take a huge pay cut basically um so we kind of you know we had pretty pretty standard at the time like you know, developer, like basically we didn't want to take much of a pay cut. Right. Um, from what we were currently making. So we did the gradual process and it took us, um, like I said, I think it took us a couple of years to ultimately get there. But when we did finally say like, okay, we're going to be like, we're going to start cutting the clients and just go full time on this. Um, it was around the same time for all of us, I think. Were there any early decisions you guys made that if you could go back, you would do it differently? Because there's so many decisions you have to make to get a business out the door. Like there's the name, which obviously you love um, and I love as well. Mm. There <laughs> is your pricing and your business model. There are the types of customers you're selling to. There's your marketing copy and like the way you describe yourselves. How much of that has changed? I think our like the way we describe our describe ourselves has uh, like we've refined it over the years. I don't know if it's changed uh, dramatically. Maybe maybe it has. If I go back and look at our initial like our initial sales page or something, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's pretty different. But I think like we haven't changed a whole lot in like in the spirit of what we are, what we do. I think if I could go back, maybe one thing that I would that I would like to have had um, would be some like more outside like a more a greater variety of outside input on on what I was doing at the time if that makes sense just because we you know I like all being developers we're all very similar in uh the way we think and our you know our approach to things I think over the years I've I've learned the value started to learn the value anyway of having more diverse opinions and you know other ways of thinking and input into the business or into you know what I'm doing so that's kind of a newer, I guess that's kind of a newer realization, but that's something I'm kind of looking more into these days is, uh, you know, just from a standpoint of like personal growth and and growing the business into new territory that I don't understand or, I, you know, is out of my realm of expertise. Like, I think it's like having people that don't think like I do is a is a good thing. So give me an example of like something that the three of you guys might all be very similar minded on as developers, but like an outsider, for example, I think one of your employees now is a marketer. What do they bring yeah. to the table that you guys would so, consider? Ironically, uh, so Ben Finley is our marketing manager, and uh, ironically, like he's one of the most like uh, 
analytically minded of all of us, <laughs> which is, I mean, like focused on like, you know, like numbers and analytics and actual like marketing, like results of advertising, that sort of stuff. That's probably like one area, like, you know, we, we all, we like marketing and it's something that we're really invested in learning. And it's, you know, we're basically, you know, all three of us are pretty marketing focused, um, or I should say all, basically the whole team is pretty marketing focused. But bringing bringing Ben on, like, and he he definitely is, um, you know, he thinks more like a marketer and definitely not like less like a developer because um, he's not a developer. And uh, he's definitely brought a lot to the company that, you know, we didn't have. And he, he routinely will, you know, have, you know, if we're talking about a problem, um, he'll approach it from a totally different angle. And, um, and yeah, and that's been great. But yeah, the, the analytics thing, um, I think, you know, we like when we do marketing, we're all about, I think we're still all about like the, the building and the doing of it and the, like the shipping aspect of it. And then like a lot of the times the trap we would fall into is like, we just forget to measure the results or (laughs) or like, you know, we'd we'd forget to like have any like discernible, like prediction of is it, was this successful or not beyond like our feeling and did it make us happy? Did we have Uh people that liked it? Could we see some results from it. You're almost treating uh, marketing like like a, a product feature, like something that you build and you get it out the door, <laughs> rather than as like an experiment that you run and, and really test yeah. what happened. Yeah, and um, yeah, and experiments. Funny you mentioned that, but like the whole like been trying to develop much more of an experimenting mindset lately, and I'd say like over the last five years even. Um, but yeah, basically like the idea of like just not only like forcing yourself to ship things, but then. Um, understanding that it's okay if it's not like a huge success or it's not something you even keep, but as long as you're like trying specific things and that's like, I think that's a big takeaway for me as I've learned marketing is that a lot of it is just like actually experimenting to see what works and then uh, having a way to measure the results and using that information to keep, you know, keep doing what works and then continue trying to find other things that work. Yeah, I've tried a lot of things that that don't work over the years, and uh, yeah. thrown away a lot of code and a lot of a lot of marketing approaches. Yeah, but the act of trying itself is the. I mean, that's like the um, the discipline, right? Like, if you don't develop that, you you basically just don't do anything, or or you just keep doing the same thing that may not be working, and uh, you know you don't grow like you want to. You were mentioning earlier that part of running a SaaS business is that you grow and then you taper off and you got to figure out what's wrong, you know, what's the new channel that's going to work for you. And then you start growing again and then mm-hmm. you repeat. What are some of these growth spurts that you had and what have been sort of the primary mechanisms for Honey Badger growing during those spurts? I think so far, I think uh, most of it has been like pricing issues. And I know early on, like we had, I think our first, our first kind of plateau was uh, related to our pricing not being quite right. And it was, I think it was low, lower than it could have been. And we ended up experimenting with our pricing, our plans and our tiers and that sort of thing. Um, I, I remember going through like a few iterations of uh, of different pricing and, and we continue today even to, to play with it some. Um, so that's something that like never, I don't think, I don't see it ever going away, but um that was especially in the beginning like that was like when we had no idea how to price a product basically um or what the market would bear that was that was one of the first ones 
I just talked to Patrick Campbell, the CEO of ProfitWell, and his entire yeah. business is around helping companies figure out their pricing and reduce churn, et yeah. cetera. And he was he's somewhat about, of an expert. <laughs> yeah, he's an expert on this. And yeah. He was saying that you know there are really three levers to how a company can grow revenues. Part of it is user acquisition, and that's what everybody focuses mm-hmm. on. How do I get new customers in the door? But the other two are monetization, right? Your pricing and figuring out what you're charging for, how you're charging, how much you're charging, et cetera, and then also reducing churn. So you're talking about pricing being like a lever of growth for you. How did changing your pricing enable you guys to grow revenue? So, I mean, like initially we just started charging more, you know, we raised prices in general and, you know, we're making more money off of the users that are coming in the door. Um, So, you know, that's growing revenue at a greater rate than it was. We uh, we experimented with uh, different different methods of tiering. So, you know, we at in the beginning, I think like we were all very uh, like we all really want like we had the idea that we didn't want to limit people um, in some certain like some specific ways that we had been limited with other products and we didn't you know, we just didn't like it. And we were like, well, if it's our business, like we're just not going to do it. That works out like we still have a little bit of that mentality. But I mean, like that's a, those levels levers are really important in your pricing. So like things like, you know, what feature are you going to like tier on features? Are you going to tier on uh, data or usage limits? You have to you know, you have to have some kind of lever because you can't like if you just depend on on your customers basically just to you know, throw money at you just because you're <laughs> just because they like you, like maybe a few will, but like that is not the norm. So <laughs> we had, you know, we had to, we had to take a little bit of a harder line at times than we, the, we probably wanted to initially in order to like, actually, you know, get what's get, you know, make the product worth what it extract the amount of value that you need from the product for what it's worth. Recently, uh, one of our last plateaus um, that we've broken out of recently and uh, and started like we've seen some uh, like growth has resumed pretty well was related to um, to uh, volume limits or usage limits. So we had gone one of the things early on, like we were really adamant about was like, we're not going to have any basically we're not going to have any volume limits, like no rate limiting anything that worked great. Like when we had like, you know, a couple hundred customers, but when you get into the, into the thousands and some of those customers are like eBay (laughs) um, (laughs) or something, you know, like large, (laughs) large, uh, large uh, applications that are um, basically, you know, performing denial of service attacks (laughs) on your, on your servers, you need to have some sort of limits. So we've experimented a lot with that. We landed on a pretty good, um, like compromise, we felt that was it was still very generous to our users, um, but it was also uh, it was you know uh, fair to us um, in the business. But then we basically like didn't enforce the limits, <laughs> um, so like we published you know we published the limits basically, but then we didn't like build the back end to um, you know to basically like turn cut off people the, off cut people off because we like to be nice you know like we don't want to cut people off because we know what it feels like. So, you know, we learned from that, like people just if, you know, if they go over the limit and there's no, there, there's no repercussion, then it's just, it's like you don't have a limit. So, so we, again, we went back and we built some, what I think is like fairly generous still, um, like we allow people to exceed the limit to a, a certain amount and send them a lot of notifications and all that sort of thing. But eventually they do get cut off. And just that act alone is like, that was enough to like, just, you know, you know, push the ramp back up. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I think the thing that Patrick 
was telling me about on the show that was really new to me. I didn't really thought of it that much was choosing the right, what he called value metric. And so you want to choose for something mm-hmm. that like as companies grow, they sort of grow into that plan and they're, when you charge them more money, they're actually getting more value from it. So for example, if you're charging like per user, but like they don't really get more value from having more users who can sign into Honey Badger, then they're going to be like grumpy yeah. about that. Versus if you're charging for what you guys do, which is like the number of errors per month that they can run into mm-hmm. or the amount of retention for the um, for the reports that you guys generate, like that's pretty cool. If I'm yeah, you know, paying more money, at least I'm getting a lot more value. I can you know report more errors. I can see my errors for longer. So it makes sense. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's kind of our, you know, that's, that's basically, um, I think the main things that's been the main growth, uh, strategy for us, um, so far. And uh, ironically, like we're, we're, well, maybe not ironically, but we're terrible at the user acquisition side of it, (laughs) to be honest. Like we're, uh, that's one area where we're really like trying to, we're trying to learn more. Um, and that's the side of marketing. I think that is, you know, as developers, like that doesn't, hasn't come naturally to us, but I will say like, all of our like user acquisition growth for the most part, like we've done a lot of marketing and advertising stuff, um, but it's all centered around word of mouth and, um, and like actually like interacting in our community, um, being a member of our community, like that all kind of plays into word of mouth, I, I think. So a lot of our marketing is like centered around that, but our customers are amazing and like they're pretty much our number like well they are our number one in priority so everything we do pretty much centers around our customers and and shipping things for them listening to their feedback even just like giving them cool experiences at conferences or you know whatever we can to make their lives better and that that's paid off on the i think on the at least growth from user acquisition is we haven't really had to figure that out yet we probably will but it's you know we've been able to grow still without being like amazing at uh, like, you know, marketing yeah. gurus or something. You mentioned earlier that you have really slow, steady, linear growth. And I think that being an exception handling service, a uh, monitoring service, that automatically means you're probably gonna have pretty good retention. Assuming you're not air break with like terrible customer support and like an unreliable product, people generally, once they sign up for monitoring, and if they like it, they're probably not going to just like churn mm-hmm. next week. Whereas if you're building something like a to-do list application, well, like that's pretty easy for people to churn from because they have to remember every week to add new tasks. And if they don't, then they automatically churn by default. So that's like a pretty cool mm-hmm. way to keep your growth going. And it seems like you've really doubled down on that by focusing so much on customer support and making sure your product is really good. Yeah. And the people using it feel taken care of because now they're you know even doubly less likely to churn and quit. Totally. Yeah. And I, that has really paid off for us. Our churn is, uh, is, has been around one or sub 1%. So that's crazy. Yeah. It's, it, it, it worked really well for us. And like you said, we're probably in a good, a good, we're, you know, we have a good type of application and, uh, what we do is fits well for that. But yeah, I think you're, that, yeah, our efforts there have like really paid off. If you're churning like 1% or fewer than 1% of your paying customers every month, like yeah. you can so, you can basically have no so, customer acquisition. So see, like, yeah, that's where we can afford to like be terrible at customer acquisition because exactly. no, one, be no one leaves. Because <laughs> yeah, no one leaves. I yeah. think it's something that a lot of people just uh, overlook when they're starting businesses. Like, how do I get people in the door? But it's like, well, 80% of your customers are leaving after a month. So like, do you really want to totally. spend your time getting more people in the door if that's what your churn looks like? Yeah, no, uh, yeah, totally. And I, yeah, I think you're right. That's that's a hugely overlooked. And I think, yeah, for me, like that that can feel daunting. Like when you see how few 
you know, if you put things in context, like how few, uh, you know, signups you actually get for like where you supposedly should be. But yeah, it doesn't matter. Like there's still ways to grow and and you can always go and learn how to also, um, you know, do customer acquisition better. Yeah. One of the things you guys have done that's sort of a customer acquisition play, if you will, is you have a podcast now. It's called Mm -hmm. Founder Quest. I'm I'm kind of on a roll here. I feel like the last 10 people I've talked to are either in the podcasting space with the business that serves podcasters or they have a podcast. Uh, And you're no exception. Tell me about Founder Quest. What is it and why did you guys start a podcast? So Founder Quest, uh, you can uh, listen or subscribe at founderquestpodcast.com. But it's basically the three of us, the three founders of Honey Badger, just chatting every week about the business and a lot like we discuss a lot of like topic, we go deep on topics like that we're discussing right now. So a lot of it has been in a similar vein to like the discussions we've been having, like what's worked, what hasn't. Um, it's all been pretty much uh, marketing and business and bootstrapping focused. Um, we get into some of the technical, you know, some of it's technical. It's, it's kind of targeted at, um, at a tech like developers who are interested in, in bootstrapping or starting their own companies basically. But yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun, and uh, it's made me really like podcasting. Like I I love like like I said, like we're all we're all pretty uh, independent. Like we we don't like we chat, but we're we're not like always talking face to face, and we're remote, so we don't always see each other. So like it's a really nice way to like get together every week and actually just chat. So I, I look forward to talking to my co founders, and uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I love your. Um your art for your podcast. I'm on founderquestpodcast.com. Are you the uh, the barbarian with like the red beard and I'm, the axe on the left? I am, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're looking fierce. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh we're um it's kind of a we're going for like a um like a Dungeons and Dragons kind of kind of theme, I think, with the whole quest and <laughs> the artwork and all that. I, that's actually Star's doing. Um he's a he's a big D D fan. Yeah, it looks great. There's but, this video game I yeah. used to play as a kid on the Sega Genesis called um golden axe and there's like a dwarf character with an axe and you remind me your nice. character on this in this website reminds me of my uh my favorite character from that game so awesome yeah the the um the artist who does the artwork on that also does the art like all the artwork on our uh, like our stickers and t-shirts and stuff which is one of the other marketing things that we're really we're really big on is like we like doing like badass t-shirt artwork and and that sort of stuff and then giving a lot of them away for free so so you've got a podcast, you're going to conferences, you're giving away stickers and shirts and stuff like that. Which of these user acquisition techniques would you say has worked the best? Like if you had to keep one and give up the others, what would you keep? That's a good question. The I don't know if we've seen like the podcast is fairly new. So I don't know if it's I can't say like if it's been a huge if it's made a huge difference in uh, like user acquisition. Um, I think we're looking at it as, um, like I said, kind of like an experiment. Like we, we always wanted to do one. We just never, we didn't, you know, we procrastinated on it to be honest and just never did it. So we were like, let's actually do this. And we like sharing about, you know, we, we like, uh, like I said, like the develop, you know, the, the kind of starting out developers, a bootstrapper, like that's kind of our, those are our people. So we like being able to just like share with them. I would say, you know, we've gotten a lot of value out of, conferences and being part of the community we're torn on conferences because they're very hard to like measure like i said like we never had a way to measure how effective they actually were like in in getting new users but since our 
a lot, like pretty much all of our growth has been word of mouth, like actually going and meeting people and having them like know we exist and we're real people and we're developers like them and making those connections has been like a big a win for us, I would say. And so like, I think any place where we can actually like communicate and meet our customers and prospective customers has been a, has been a good thing to do. You said earlier that you were naive enough to start a product business for your first business and that you've learned some lessons about it, that it's not easy and that it's a slow process. What would you say is the biggest lesson that you've learned from running this product business that you would hope first-time founders and people just considering this would, would also know? I think that really that the slow, the slow glo- uh, growth trajectory of a software as a service business, like I didn't really know what the growth trajectory was when we started. Like I didn't know it really. I didn't know much about SaaS or other products for that matter. And so I think like, you know, it's a lot more, there's a lot more awareness now of the different, like what you can expect when starting, you know, different types of businesses or like if you go the info product route or, you know, that sort of thing. Like I think the, you know, you, you start to get, you get a lot more feed, feedback a lot more quickly. You can make changes a lot more quickly. With SaaS, it's, you know, when you're starting out, usually it's like six months before you actually, at least before you actually have um, something that's that's even somewhat complete. And uh, as you're building it, it's easy to to just build it and not talk to anyone. Yeah. And especially Very as a developer. <laughs> and so that's, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of people today. There's a lot, uh, frankly, like there's so many, so many more resources for bootstrappers and especially bootstrap developers today that didn't exist back, eight, you know, seven, eight years ago when we were getting into this, at least like, you know, I didn't, I didn't know about it, about a lot of this stuff. So like learning, learning ways to actually like validate your market and build what people want and, uh, and that sort of thing, like get, start getting as, you know, early feedback as much as possible. Like all that stuff is good to know if you're, especially if you're going to go into SaaS, cause like I said, it's, it's easy to fall into just like build it and then you don't build the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's, it's so important to sort of go into it with your eyes open and know how long the cycles can be for starting a SaaS business to get things started. And yeah. whether you start off as a freelancer or you start by building an info product or you start by building a really small SaaS product, just having some sort of small bite that you can take to make the transition easier is is, is really important. Yeah, yeah. And, and building like having a good um, foundation to build from too. Like I said, like I, we had the freelancing, which, which made it a lot less risky for us to just start building a SaaS that was going to take, you know, five years or whatever to to become like real, real money. So yeah, I think there's other, there's other ways to build, build on a foundation and you might mix, you know, mix and match a lot of these different things that people do to, to kind of support themselves until the the software as a service can, can grow, can grow to the point where, where it's, uh, you know, paying the bills. Well, listen, Josh, it's been great having you on here. You guys are killing it with Honey Badger with your slow, steady, low churn growth. You guys have gotten acquisition offers to sell. You've turned them down, obviously, because you're still here working on it. Uh, what's the future look like for Honey Badger? What do you think will be in another year or two? Hopefully, like you know, not not too much is different. Um, maybe a few more people. Uh, we're not planning to hire rapidly, but we you know we'd like to add to the team a little bit. Um, and uh, 
you know, keep working on making the business more sustainable for everyone. I think that's like one of our, you know, big things is that we want to, we want to enjoy this while we're working on it. And, uh, and so, you know, we have sacrificed some, some growth for in exchange for a healthier, happier lifestyle, but it's been totally worth it in my opinion. And, uh, and yeah, we're, you know, we want to keep growing the business and, uh, and keep kind of learning about this, uh, this whole like style of working and style of building. So there's a lot that, um, there's a lot that I personally know I'm going to learn and, you know, hope to learn. And so, yeah, just keep, you know, keep, keep at it basically. Well, listen, Josh, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with us and helping other people who are trying to accomplish what you've done, learn a little bit more about what that path looks like. Can you tell listeners where they can go to find out more about what you're up to at Honey Badger and also where they can find your Founder Quest podcast? Yeah, totally. So you can find us at honeybadger.io. That's our uh, our main website. Uh, FounderQuestPodcast.com is the podcast. You can find us on um, whatever, Overcast or iTunes or or wherever else, uh, Spotify. Um, just search for FounderQuest. We recently launched a, a, a Git, with the, uh, the GitHub Student Developer Pack. Um, which is kind of a cool, uh, it's a thing GitHub put together, which basically um, takes a bunch of like partners that uh, serve developers and it gives, uh, we all give away um, special things for students, basically. Um, So if you go to education.github.com slash pack, um, if you're a student developer, you're just getting started, um, you can basically get the whole pack and then you get a bunch of offers uh, basically for free. So I think we're giving away like a, um, a free small Honey Badger account for a year to new students. So yeah. And uh, if you want to connect with me personally, it's joshuawood.net. All right. Thanks so much, Josh. <laughs> Thank you. Listeners, if you enjoyed the episode, I would love it if you reached out to Josh and let him know. His website is joshuawood.net and all his contact details are listed there. I believe his email address is just josh at joshuawood.net. But my favorite thing is when guests who've been on the show tell me that they've received all sorts of nice letters and emails and tweets from all of you. So again, if you enjoyed hearing from Josh, just reach out and email him and tell him thanks. Also, I am available on ndhackers.com. At any point in time, if you're trying to start a company or you have any questions, feel free to make a post there and just tag me. I'm at CS Allen, and I will get back to you. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time.